there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Are you interested in Asia or what it's like to break into business in the Far East? or in China specifically, because that is exactly what my next guest has done over the last 30 years. And he was a liberal arts major in college. But before I introduce you to Brock Silvers, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's the weekly newsletter we blast out Monday mornings to give you a one-stop shop place to find out what professions and which professionals we're going to be featuring that week. It is super easy to sign up. Just go to the Time for Coffee website at Time the number 4coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. And if you scroll down just a bit, you'll see we've also organized all the T4C episodes by profession. So if you're interested in other episodes on finance or business, you can click on that box. Or maybe you prefer the world of startups and entrepreneurships. We've got that too. Or maybe you're more into theater and music and the arts. We've got you covered. And if we're missing an industry that you really care about, shoot me an email at Andrea at time, the number four coffee dot org, and I will get on it right away. Now, my friends, it is that time. So please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my next guest is someone who goes way back with me to when I was an undergrad at Middlebury College. Brock Silvers and I studied Chinese together one summer at the Middlebury College Summer Language School. And today he is a da laoban. He is the managing director at Kaiyuan Capital, a private equity investment firm based in Shanghai, China. Brock also served as the chief executive officer at the Laris Group, as well as a co-founding partner at Power Pacific Company. And to learn more about all the incredible places that Brock has worked over the years, you can check him out on LinkedIn. Brock, welcome to Time for Coffee. I know it is very late in the evening in Shanghai, but nevertheless, I have to ask you the T for C question. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I'm always caffeinated and always ready to go. I am so excited to hear that. And Brock, I cannot tell you how excited I am to catch up with you and learn more about all that you have accomplished over the last 20 years since we last saw one another. And I thought maybe we could start with where you are right now at Cayuan Capital. For those listeners like me who aren't financial gurus, what is a private equity investment firm and what does Cayuan invest in? Right. Well, look, I've done a multitude of different types of jobs in the investment area since I've been out here. I began as essentially a hedge fund family office style analyst working for investment legend Sam Zell. And I eventually managed global equity research and non-real estate private equity and M&A for various Zelle entities. I was then an equities portfolio manager in Hong Kong. I co-founded a PE firm in China 
And now I run what I would call a multi-asset advisory and fundraising boutique in Shanghai and, and Hong Kong as well. And I'm a fairly prolific markets analyst in the financial press, frequently rambling about on business TV. What we do at Kaiyuan is basically to assist firms doing investment into or out of China. And sometimes that's public markets, buying and selling stocks and managing portfolios. And sometimes it's doing private deals like PE and M&A. And sometimes it's helping people to raise money to do all of the above. It's a fairly changing landscape where one week or one month, I may be doing something that's quite different from what I'm doing the next week or the next month. Got it. And could you just boil it down into layman's terms? What is private equity and what does a private equity investment firm in general do? Okay. As opposed to buying stocks, which are publicly traded companies, and you can buy and sell shares in a structured way, private equity buys and sells non-traded, non-listed companies in part or in whole. So if you want to buy someone's private company, you'll engage in a PE transaction to do that. And then you will presumably grow it, improve it, run it. And at some point, you will try and get some money out of it by either listing it on a stock exchange or selling it to another firm and so on. So going through that cycle from the time you've raised money and found a target and made a deal, run it, grown it. And then when you look to get some money out and make your exit, that's the private equity life cycle. And that's organized a lot of my activities for quite a few years now. Great. Before we flash back into your Sam Zell years and immediate post-college years, can you take us into a typical day, Brock, right now? What are you doing on an average day in Shanghai and what are your priorities? Sure. A visitor to my office would probably see a lot of Bloomberg and CNBC because I normally have that on in the background. I consume a lot of info. Info is just gasoline in the tank for an investment advisory firm like my own. So I don't know that I have a typical day. It depends what I'm doing. If I'm working on an investment project, I may spend a great deal of time at my computer trying to analyze something and derive some sort of conclusion. How much is something worth? How can the deal be structured? Whereas if I'm fundraising, I may spend a great deal of time on the phone talking to investors and potential investors. I also do quite a bit of travel, either internally in China or between Hong Kong and Shanghai quite a bit, either working on projects or looking for new ones. You have to spend a fair bit of time trying to reel in some new fish as well. So I do all that. And there's also a heavy dose of media, which requires a constant stream of kind of research and preparation. And I'm always kind of running off to studios to try and give my opinions. So all that sounds a little bit hectic. I'm lucky enough to have a great deal of control over my schedule and how much time I spend on different activities. But what I have found is that people with more control over their schedules end up having to work harder than many other people. <laughs> yes. And honestly, it sounds like it is very hectic. I'm guessing you carve out time for your special interests. And I know you've written a couple of books over the years. So you clearly are making time for other things outside of the daily grind. I'd have to imagine, Brock, knowing what I know about China as being a fairly opaque country with maybe not the same level of robust legal infrastructure that we have in the West, that getting the kind of information that you need 
to advise your clients on their private equity investments would be a challenge. So how do you do that? It is a challenge. And that's why I often find that I have to be here, right? If, if we could all do this while sitting in sunny California, I think we all would. But you just aren't exposed to the daily information that you need unless you're here full time. So in some aspects, that's good. And in other aspects, it's just something that you have to do. But as I say, I'm a major consumer of data and information. And that comes through the media, but also through being here and also just through my ongoing work. So it's the culmination of having spent a couple of decades out here doing this that gives me the kind of knowledge uh, fundamentals that allow me to sort of put my analyses together. Absolutely. And as I said at the outset, I mean, you have invested pretty much your entire adult life into becoming a true expert on China, the language, the culture, the economy. What is your advice today to young people, Brock? Is China, and of course, I'm including Hong Kong in that, still a promising country, an emerging market, that makes sense for those who want to chase their dreams and build a business or a career on the mainland? Yes and no. Look, to some extent, China has been very good to me personally and professionally for a long time, but that doesn't mean that the next generation will get the same two or three decades of experience that I got. And my professional life out here in China wasn't actually by design. It was just sort of how the business world evolved that took me out here and kept me here. And I would say that for people doing the same sort of thing today, it's not clear to me that 30 years from now, this will be the place where people have to try and emulate what I've done. There will be uh, new waves and new dreams to be had. And people are going to have to figure that out and be flexible and figure out what makes sense in future years for their own dreams. What do you think our listeners, those who think they may want to build a career in the world of finance right now, should be studying? You were a liberal arts major. And you made it work. And granted, you right. went to Wharton and you got an MBA, but you did that a few years after you right. graduated from Columbia because you were also learning a lot on the job, right? Yeah, that's right. Look, I was a Chinese major. And at the time, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do with it. It wasn't a popular major because China hadn't really opened up and you hadn't seen the economic explosion and people weren't getting jobs out here at that point and so on. I was just doing it because I thought it was intellectually interesting and challenging. So it was intellectual reasons rather than professional ones. So I didn't know where it was going to end up. And luckily, it worked out for me. But I don't think that that was a very smart plan at the time. And I think it's a less smart plan today. So I'm just not sure that someone should approach it the way I did. I think it worked well for me. But I would advise folks today that they need to put more thought into what that postgraduate career is going to be and to take some active steps to make it happen rather than just stumbling and bumbling onto it like I did. So can I just give you some gentle pushback there? Push away. I would suspect, Brock, that one of the ingredients in the secret sauce that has made you so successful today has been the fact that you speak the language and that you really understand the culture and the history of China. Don't you think so? Yes, I have a fairly good understanding of Chinese 
history, religion, literature, etc., often better than some of my local counterparts, especially kind of the younger ones. And that part wasn't an accident. Remember, I became a Chinese major with intent because I found it a fascinating subject and went on to not only got an MBA, but I did a joint degree program at Penn where I got an MA that was also focused on China. A lot of that has played into making me very knowledgeable about China in a way that happened to help my career, which was, I think, unexpected, but totally welcome. So the fact that you followed what was intellectually interesting to you was a pretty good path. Yes, it worked for me. But I also think that it was a very risky path, and it's not one that I'm sure I would recommend. I think that Brock 30 years ago and young professionals today just starting out should probably have more intent and have spent more time doing a bit of career planning. I didn't and it worked out, but I wouldn't recommend that for everyone. Okay, fair enough. So what was your first job out of Columbia and how did you get it? Well, I had already graduated and I was back home in Chicago where I'm from without a job. And honestly, I was getting a bit nervous and desperate. And a classmate from Columbia introduced me to a friend of hers who was a mid-level guy at a smaller Wall Street firm. I did a phone call interview with him. That didn't pan out, but he introduced me to the CEO of a new investment firm in Hartford, Connecticut, of all places, North American Investment Corp., which was run by a very smart, accomplished, aggressive guy, Ed Kopko. I got a job as an analyst working for Ed's firm. I met a number of very sharp people and got my introduction to the business. So I'd say I got exactly what I wanted and needed from Ed. A year or so later, the firm ran into some SEC compliance issues and the writing was on the wall. And I wrote a letter to Sam Zell, told him I needed a job. And a couple of weeks later, I was back in Chicago working for Sam, which turned out to have been the big break in my career. So for those few who may not know who Sam Zell is, he is really an iconic figure in the world of American real estate. I mean, Brock, you could probably give us much more of an explanation as to who Sam Zell is. He's a multi-billionaire as well. Right. A billionaire, a very legendary, famous investment expert who started out in the real estate world and has since branched out into corporate investing as well. At this point, he's as big as it gets. And I sort of joined him when he was transitioning more or less from being an existing real estate big shot to in the era of barbarians at the gate and corporate raiders. He was expanding into corporate investing. And I sort of ended up as his initial analyst in that effort. And when you wrote him a letter, did you know him or was this just a shot in the dark? I had gone to high school in Chicago with Sam's daughter. I did not know Sam and wrote him a letter blindly saying, I know your daughter. I desperately need a job. Come help me, please. And amazingly enough, that worked out. And a couple of weeks later, I was I was his analyst. That is incredible. I think a couple of things jumped out to me, Brock, just in your short-term post-college life, and that is the power of relationships and building on what the Chinese would call guanxi, which is the relationships that you have. How important have relationships been to you in building your career? 
it's crucial. And as the years have passed, I've become a more and more dedicated networker and relationship-oriented guy. But it also requires a mindset that includes a fair bit of assertiveness, if not aggressiveness. If you were too embarrassed or shy to write Sam a letter, that's okay, but you wouldn't have gotten that job. You had to have the assertiveness that said, I'm going to write this big shot a letter and more so, I'm going to tell him that I really need a job and I want to come work for him. Absolutely. If you don't ask, you might not get the sale if you do ask, but you definitely aren't going to get the sale if you don't. So for those Java junkies for whom networking and relationship building does not come easily, what advice do you have to offer them, Brock? It will come more easily with time, but it's a skill that requires a bit of personal sophistication. And I can't emphasize enough that you should be doing it, especially now that you're in school and meeting a lot of people. That's a perfect time to start meeting folks and sort of getting to know them. But it really is crucial for people who want to build global networks. If you're looking for an international job, you've got to start. That is such a great point because right now for those Java junkies still in school, every classmate, every professor is a relationship that you can be strategically nurturing. I mean, ideally you'll be nurturing relationships with people you genuinely like, but you can also keep an eye on your future interests and you don't know what you're going to be interested in 10, 15, 20 years from now. So being nice and being helpful to your classmates and your professors is just a smart thing to do. And you don't know who is going to go on to do something fantastically interesting or successful 20 years from now either. So the person that you might dismiss today might 20 years from now, turn out to be an incredibly interesting person that you wish you had appreciated more back in the day. A hundred percent. So speaking of Sam Zell, who was somebody that you wrote a letter to, a little desperate, and got a job as an analyst and ended up working for him for 10 years, what did you get out of the decade that you invested in working with him? More than I can probably explain. I got a tremendous grounding in the business that I wanted to be in, right? He taught me how to be an investment analyst. He taught me how to be an investment executive. So there's a skill basis that I got that I think was irreplaceable. But there's also sort of an imprimatur involved. I spent a long time with Sam. I know Sam personally and very well. And that has also helped my career immeasurably as it helps you to gain the respect of others as you go about your path because they know that you've already done something interesting with a fascinating and successful guy. When you were working for him, Brock, and especially in the early years, what was your mindset? What was the vibe that you tried to put out every day to show Sam that you were someone he really wanted to keep on his team? Sure. Well, a lot of that goes to one's fundamental makeup. I was very determined to make up for the fact that I really didn't know anything and didn't have a great deal of experience. And that didn't make me feel bad about myself. That made me feel 
very aggressive in trying to deal with some of those deficiencies. Now, I'll tell you a quick story. When I was brand new with Sam, he actually had a partner named Bob Lurie. And it wasn't Sam, it was Sam and Bob. Now, Bob was a character for the ages, a sweet and charming man, but he looked like a roadie who had just fallen off the Willie Nelson tour bus or maybe the homeless guy you just saw at McDonald's. But he was brilliant. I mean, probably the smartest guy I've ever worked with. Now, I have no small regard for my own intelligence, but I'm telling you, Bob's intelligence was very intimidating. Now, he wasn't going to connect with you on your level. It was his way or no way, and he had just zero patience for people who couldn't keep up. Now, he was a great guy. I love him to this day, but he was brutal. And now I was his analyst and his personal plaything. So he delighted in proving me wrong. And here's how our normal system worked. He might ask me to value some company shares and I'd come back a week later to receive my ritual beating. He would frequently tell me I was a kid who didn't know anything I should get out of his office. Eventually, I earned the right to have longer discussions about companies, which would generally include me making a presentation, him shredding it and mocking it. Now, he might suggest changes to some of my financial modeling and sit there while I hammered away at a hand calculator until you could see flame coming off my fingertips. And before I could give him a new answer or a new IRR or a new calculation, he'd already have done it in his head to the second decimal point. And then he'd throw me out of his office. Now, most people would have simply cried and quit. He was a very tough guy. But no man ever studied the whims of his paramour more so than I did those of Bob Lurie, and I fought back. I studied his methods, and once I could figure out where he was likely to punch, I could pre-prepare a defense for myself. Eventually, I would do things like I'd sucker him in. I'd let him dismiss me with a concern that I knew he would have. And then I'd whip out a schedule or an analysis to deal with. Now, he appreciated the fact that I was going to fight back with him. And after a while, I would win my fair share of debates. Now, unfortunately, Bob died young from cancer. But I'm telling you, the smartest guy I ever worked with, a great, great teacher. It was my great honor to have worked with him for so long. So I don't know. That's just sort of the attitude it took to be a successful guy in that atmosphere, which could be difficult and would have been very hard for someone who wasn't confident or assertive. Yeah, and had grit. Right. That is an amazing story, Brock. Thank you for sharing that. I want to ask you about a time in your professional life when you struggled, and that may have been it, but there may have been other points, Brock, where a lesser person would have quit. How did you muscle your way through and What was the lesson that you learned in the process? A lot of the finance world in the West and in Asia is very similar to my story with Bob Lurie in that it's a difficult world filled with hard people and there's lots of money and careers involved and people can be difficult. And not everyone is always going to be friendly and not everyone is always going to be happy to help you along. And you have to take those same attributes, which are for me, it was I never wanted to go into a meeting unless I thought I was the best prepared guy there. I was in an atmosphere where everyone was super smart, so I couldn't count on being the smartest guy in a room. That was normally Sam or Bob. But I knew that I could be the most prepared guy. And I worked like a dog. And you have to give up a lot of other things in order to have that sort of focus. Sometimes when the energy would dip or when you were less successful, that could become very problematic. And then either that situation is going to win over you or you're going to win over that situation. 
And I think everyone goes through that a fair bit. I certainly did. But I like to prove myself right, as I've said here on the show, and I work hard to try and do that. I wonder, Brock, if your interest in Taoism has helped you get through some of those difficult times. And we should tell Java junkies that you wrote a book in 2004 that is still available on Amazon, as well as other sites, called The Taoist Manual, An Illustrated Guide applying Taoism to daily life. And Brock also has a second book coming out later this year called Seeking Immortals, which I guess is a a follow-on to the Taoist manual. But what role has Taoism played in helping you, aiding you, bringing you out of challenging circumstances? Well, I am certainly an amateur Taoism scholar, and I've spent a good deal of time sort of involved in Taoist activities. And for me, what that really grew out of is the fact that I've been here so long in China, and I think it's been a great help in getting me to understand a lot of the cultural atmosphere and environment here in China. A lot of that historical culture still exists, and it impacts people in sometimes an unknown way including in the business community. In the Taoist tradition, most people wouldn't have been priests and monks and nuns. Most people would have been sort of active in society, but have been religious in a way that didn't prohibit them from being military or government or business officials. And that's always been sort of my goal is to sort of keep doing both of those things. And the Taoism aspect I love, but it certainly made me, I think, a more effective business executive in China. Of that, I'm pretty confident. But you wouldn't say that the Taoist principles have aided you during the more challenging periods in your life. I frequently call down different deities to come save me, but it infrequently happens. (laughs) So I'm not sure it's worked in, in that way, but it has certainly made me a better businessman here. And it's also given me some softer skills that are very appreciated at times by my Chinese counterparts, like added language skills. And I can recite a large corpus of traditional Chinese literature and so on that's important to Taoism. And that generally helps as an icebreaker or at least impresses some of my colleagues. Yeah, it's better than being able to twist a maraschino cherry stem with your tongue. Exactly, which I've never mastered, but I can recite a lot of ancient Chinese. (laughs) Okay, Brock. So final time for coffee question. If you could go back to Colombia and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Well, I think that college students today probably have to keep their future careers in mind a bit more than I did. If I were in college now, I think I'd probably be an industrial or a petroleum engineer. But I think maybe I'd double major in something for fun like classics because still a classics sort of guy. But that's me and dreams aren't really transferable. What I would say to a matriculating freshman is that you really need a postgraduate plan or you should be in the middle of constantly refining one. So it's okay for me to study something you love like Taoism or in college, join a fraternity if you want, make time for a boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever. But look, given the costs involved today, it's no longer just the intellectual journey that I was after. It's really more of a job and it's one that you're paying a lot of money for. And the primary purpose of that job is it's designed to get you into the next phase of life which for most people is your next job. 
So people have to keep that in mind. And given that, I think I'd be hanging out in the engineering lab these days. Wonderful. Brock, I'm going to throw you a little bit of a curveball. I know I said that was the last question. Okay. Since you mentioned your ability to cite large passages from various Taoist writings, I thought maybe not in Chinese, but if there were a small saying or quote or something that you would want to impart upon our young listeners that will help inspire them in their careers, what would it be? What would I say in classical Chinese that would uh, that would inspire people today? There are so many quotes that are relevant. Taoism has a very famous quote that you'll see posted at almost every temple that says, if you have requests, they will answer. Now, that doesn't have to specifically be in a religious sense, as in talking to deities, but it could be exactly what I'm talking about with having more of a career plan. You have to have the question in mind before life can give you that answer. And that's always present in these temples when you see this saying, which in Chinese is yo chiu ying. And that's exactly what I'm talking about, where a matriculating freshman should be thinking of what is the question? What am I trying to do here? Why am I here? And only after you have that question, then you get to the being where then you can get an answer. Oh, my gosh. That was like an A plus response to my question, Brock. You so nailed that. And as you have nailed so many things professionally in your life, you are just an incredible individual and someone for whom I have huge respect. I thank you sincerely for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. It's just been a pleasure. Sure, we'll have to do it again sometime. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.